Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is a co-worker of mine at the Sustainable Farming Association and a farmer in Painesville, Minnesota. He's going to share his story transitioning from a high-input dairy farmer to a low-input regenerative grazing operation. Doug, welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's one I've been looking forward to having a conversation. We've had many conversations and car rides to and from work things, but today we get to uh, uh, dig into the details and, and share it with some other people. So I appreciate you coming on. I'd like if you just were willing to start off with your family's history and farming and grazing or whatever your, your family's history looks like in agriculture and maybe how you got to where you are today. Sure. We can go back, uh, let's see, three generations. Uh, the farm we're on right now dates back to my grandfather. And in the time of about 1938, uh, my grandfather grew up on a farm not too far from where I am now. And... Um, he started this operation by renting it during the depression from the bank who had repossessed it at the time and wanted to continue doing that, but the bank wasn't in a position where they were able to. And so uh, he was faced with either, you know, jumping ship or, or uh, trying to buy the farm. And in the end, uh, he was the only one that showed up on the courtroom steps the day of the sale for the farm. And so that then began our legacy on the operation by Painesville where we are currently. It's kind of funny because, uh, you know, some of the stories, my grandfather, he came from, he loved to hunt and fish and he got to the place we are now and there wasn't hardly a tree on the place. And uh, my grandmother got so frustrated because they would go to town and get groceries or something and, and the neighbors would always be nosing around. They said, well, I saw you had company last night, you know, who stopped by? So yeah, um, the, the start of the green revolution for the bosses maybe because after that, my grandfather planted many trees and um, you've been Just here yourself, privacy. Jared, so you probably have an idea. Yeah, pretty much, you know, between that in the northwest wind so it is it is minnesota central minnesota and um so yeah so you know very conservative in nature because of you know the context you know we're talking about rationing fuels we're talking um uh armistice day snowstorm during this era and uh the reason one of the biggest reasons why my grandfather uh liked this farm and pursued it was the fact that it had a uh, river going through it and a good supply of trees for firewood during that time. And so in, you know, all things considered, these were essentials. Uh, if you were looking for a sustainable operation at the time, you know, he looked at a place where he could withstand uh, drought because of the river bottom for livestock. And uh, he, as long, you know, as well as his past, you know, uh, diversified farm was the norm. So he, he milked some cows, he raised some uh, hogs, and it was the typical stereotypical, you know, a small farm during that time and of course things change over the decades to come but you know that's kind of the roots from where i come from and uh, i got to know my my grandfather quite well and before he passed and uh, he was a part of the farming operation for the most of the years even through my dad's era on the farm but it was kind of interesting i, I was kind of thinking about this conversation we're having today and um 
and there, there were a lot of remarks made to my grandfather. He was kind of a pioneer in some ways. You know, this is the threshing area, you know, when everybody got, to get, got together and, and uh, did bundles and, and, and that type of thing with small grains because uh, corn wasn't the norm here. It's, it's uh, sandy loam soil. This is an old glacial lake bottom where we're at one mile east of Painesville. And so oftentimes, you know, we'd have knee-high corn twice in the year, once in 4th of July and once the 4th of August. And so as a result, you know, there was a lot of small grains, a lot of oats. It was kind of the mainstay, <clears throat> excuse me, it was kind of the mainstay of the farm. And um, so when, uh, you know, the combine came around, my grandfather was interested in that. And, and um, so he, he began that quest kind of as a pioneer as far as trying something new. And everybody told him he was going to lose his crop because he was going to leave it out there in a windrow. <laughs> he was going to rain on it. It wasn't going to be in bundles and it would be a complete disaster. Well, you know, you know, the rest of the story, I mean, combines are, are the staple now. Yeah. So, you know, looking through that and then kind of uh, my, my father then continued the operation in about 1976. Uh, it was kind of unique here because uh, also the kind of, there's a history of pioneering certain aspects of farming where, he, uh, he was the first to irrigate class two water out of the municipal waste facility here in the state of Minnesota. And at that mm -hmm. point, uh, there wasn't any precedent, so they didn't know any, well, they were trying to do risk assessments. So he wasn't able to sell any crop off the fields because of the class two water applications. And so he had to put everything through livestock. And at that point, it was the perfect timing for expanding a dairy herd in the mid to late 70s. Um, you know, you could buy a cow, you could milk it. Uh, take a calf from it. If she didn't work out the cow cow price, you could almost get what you paid for, keep the calf and, and go start all over again and get a cow that was going to be productive in your herd and profitable. So he built, uh, he expanded the barn, the dairy barn in uh, 76 to 38 uh, tie stalls. And it wasn't more than a year or two later that we were milking close to a hundred because of that, um, that scenario with the dairy herd. In and that so same we, we had facility, just rotating cattle out and. Oh, very much so. Yeah. So we were bending down four to five times per cow and we were rotating Yikes. two to three shifts for every milking. And, um, wow. so yeah, um, you know, a lot of corn <laughs> silage in those days, that was, the, that was a thing, you know, tower silos and corn silage. And, um, and of course, round bales of hay, you know, my, I started mm -hmm. out, you know, when I was really young, we packed, I don't, you know, we had little, uh, you know, tallies of how many, you know, square bales we put up a year in the dairy barn, because it made sense. You know, we had the facilities and we were going to put up square bales yeah. and then the round baler just, it took over. And, you know, we didn't mind to see a little waste out there once in a while because, of how much labor savings and that type of thing. We still had that certain portion of bales in the hay barn in squares in the event of a snowstorm, but uh, the most of the cattle were fed outside in feedlots. Um, that, that was the extent of the dairy with the exception of a parlor later in years. Um, but this is all traditionally farm now. I mean, this is still, you know, a certain amount of synthetic fertilizers, uh, herbicides, all through this era until the early 90s on this farm. And at that point, you know, I was faced with, well, I took over the farm in uh, 99. Uh, my folks moved off the farm. And so, uh, you know, my dad said he had to leave. He couldn't handle seeing uh, weeds out in the field, which is kind of funny because there were still some weeds out in the field, you know, even with chemical farming, it's not like everything was pristine and perfectly clean, but nonetheless, you know, we expected to see a few out there because we weren't using the products that were used in the past to try to combat those things. And so we, we had converted to organic production in 99 
And, um, and at that point we were, we were milking, um, in excess of 200 cows in, uh, in a parlor, a grazing, a swing parlor at the time. Uh, we were the first to put in uh, a swing parlor in a, at the time the trade name was coverall or a canvas barn. So that was kind of a, a new situation mm. for us. Um, but we were able to milk a lot of cows for a lot less investment than what I was told. Was the dairy organic as well, or did you just transition the land and the, the cropping acres? Absolutely. So this is just at the time when you were able to market organic milk and we never did certify the cows. Uh, we did certify the land. Okay. And, um, and so from that point, we did get out of the dairy industry, uh, the early two thousands. And from that point, there was a lot of expansion in the organic milk market. And so there was demand for feedstuffs and grains for some of these organic farms. And so we, we then proceeded to market some of those grains and hay and forages to area local dairy farmers that were certified organic. Uh, and then it also followed with some edible crops. Uh, we did some dry beans and, and flax and buckwheat and some of those other things and some of it even to international markets for a while. But then then that pivotal thing kind of happened for me personally, and that was uh, the exposure to, to people that you and I talk about on a regular basis, you know, uh, some of the mm -hmm. people that have shared their stories, just kind of like we're talking about today. And, uh, you know, getting answers to some questions, I think one of the first steps for me was uh, taking a class with some um, local farmers here at the Rodale Institute. Um, Elaine Ingham had her biology course. And, uh, you know, answering the questions as to, you know, why, if you'd ever gone to the boundary waters and you've seen a pine tree growing out of a rock, how can that happen when we were supposed to be told that we have, you know, we have to stick so many units of N for that corn plant to grow out there. And uh, so on and on, but just, you know, asking more questions, finding more logical answers led us to be focused on repairing what we had done to the resource without realizing what we had done, I think with practice, whether it was acceptable or not, you know, it had negative consequences. So that is really what kind of led us to our more focused approach, what we have now as a grazing operation. And I got to the point where I realized I needed a lot more animals than I was willing to risk ownership of. And so well, it's, well, it's, it's I'm trying to think of timelines here now. It's, uh, it's about eight years ago now that we started our custom grazing operation and we got to the numbers to the point where I could get to where I wanted to be with, with capacity and really with the focus of soil health. And so, mm. um, okay. learning more and more from people all the time that have been making this their livelihood and, you know, showing positive results with their efforts on their farms that they're managing and what's that, what that's, you know, done for them for quality of life, for peace of mind. And overall, I think, uh, you know, impact on all the things that we talk about, right? Between water quality, air quality, uh, nutrient density of mm -hmm. our food and soil health. So um, that's gotten us where we are today. Um, we have some satellite grazing projects that extend beyond our farm now. And um, we're, yeah, we're expanding with numbers that we're integrating on managing on, on land today. Yeah. And there's a lot there to unpack. And so I appreciate that overview of your history, but kind of going back early on then, and that, that transition, it, it made sense that it sounds like the, the, the numbers just made perfect sense to expand the dairy and to grow the dairy. Do you remember conversations early on with your dad, your grandpa? I mean, talking about that lifestyle, about that business model, um, you know, what were their thoughts on it at the time? I mean, uh, looking back now, 
I mean, thinking about milking cows in that manner, you know, rotating out a tie style barn three, four times in a, in a rotation, the lifestyle sounds pretty terrible at the time. What were, what was your family's thoughts about it? And, and how did that affect maybe how you grew up or your future, if at all? You know, that's really interesting because looking at it from that perspective, you know, that was completely acceptable and admirable because, you know, com- dairy farming was common. Stearns County, I mean, that's like, you mm-hmm. know, fleas and a dog. Around every corner, there was a dairy farm of some kind, and uh, we rivaled yeah. the, the uh, density of dairy farms, you know, compared to only the best uh, areas of Wisconsin. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was part of the culture, right? Um I, I don't know how to really explain it. I mean, small, uh, you know, family church growing up as well, too. Many dairy farmers, many, you know, historic, historically, a lot of farmers in that church as well. So you had that community. People just knew where you were every day at a certain time of day. Uh, there weren't cell phones. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to track you down. You, they knew you were going to be in the barn or they, you know, they kind of knew what was going on mm-hmm. just by driving past yeah. your place. So that wasn't an un- un- you know, unusual and there wasn't this quest to uh, be able to you know vacation for a month in the bahamas every winter or have the lake lot or whatever you you appreciated i think the foundation and you appreciated the things that you were able to obtain because of the history i think of the family and there weren't always times where you could just get when you needed or you went when you wanted so there was the stability uh there was a cash flow year round and um for the most part, it was fairly predictable. Now, you know, a lot of dairy expansions made that very questionable. I mean, we had all kinds of issues going when we increased numbers over the years between water quality, um, you know, disease issues at times because of expansions and, and mixing herds and different, you know, challenges that, that that created with that growth. But at that time, that wasn't that wasn't a problem. Yeah. And so as the dairy grew and expanded, did that almost come out of just like kind of that mindset, that culture again, or was there a need or an in- intentionality to, to the growth and expansion or? Well, a lot of it's out of necessity. I mean, as um, you know, as the purchasing power of your dollar goes down and the product price that you're selling stays the same, everybody tells you you need to get bigger, get more efficient or whatever the case might be. Uh, that mm-hmm. compounding with, um, you know, we poked six holes in our, in our farm to find good water in the late nineties. Um, we had terrible issues with, uh, you know, feed conversions because of a high sulfate level in our water. We also had uh, stray voltage coming straight from the power company. And, uh, when you went to turn off the water faucet in the milk room, it would arc a half hour, a half inch to an inch to your finger and it would give you a shock right there. So, <laughs> You know, these types of things eroding away the vitality of, of a herd and the health of a, you know, a herd of animals that you're depending on, you know, solely for your income uh, provided that environment in which we had to increase numbers. Because if you're only going to make so much profit per animal and you're looking at you're looking to support your family and your farm with X number of dollars, that's where the math comes in pretty simple. So mm-hmm. uh, between that and an industry and uh, saying that, you know, the focus you need to hold is where the industry is going. Um, in fact, that was the whole focus of my formal education beyond high school is uh, where's the industry going? And well, if you look around the dairy industry and farming today, a lot of that still just continued, you know, larger and larger mm-hmm. uh, with the only exception of those focused on the resource and capitalizing off of opportunities with direct marketing and such. But we fell into the same gamut as, as many did. 
in that situation. And so uh, we needed to milk more cows in order to pay the bills and, and try to provide for the family. And so we got to the numbers where we did at that time. So you grew up with that and you kind of grew up in a different time where maybe the expectation wasn't necessarily that you had to come home. You were looking at other options. I mean, jobs off the farm, a career outside of agriculture. What drew you back to the farm having grown up with that lifestyle? You know, because you didn't come home and, and make changes immediately, right? You, you Did you come home with the intention of making changes or was that a, a farm style that you thought would be your career and life path? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, no, actually, when I got the call from um, from my dad asking me if I was interested in returning to the farm because I was in college at the time, and um, my younger brother had expressed no interest in, in continuing the farming operation, I was actually a, at college earning a degree in music. I was a music, music major at the time, uh, funny enough, exploring other options, but I always kind of considered the farm as something I could do if I chose to. I wasn't aware when I started my college years when that would happen until I had that and received that phone call from my dad. And so, you know, he was also frustrated at that time, uh, finding help that was, that was, you know, good and reliable and, um, and something he could depend on as well. And he was getting up in the years where he couldn't do all the work himself. I mean, we had been using, um, actually uh, for quite a few years, it was really good growing up as well as we had a number of foreign exchange students through the Minnesota agricultural student trainee program growing up when I was growing up that all uh, contributed, I think, to a good cultural and exposure and enrichment as well. So uh, we were having troubles finding individuals through that program anymore that were working out at the end for whatever the reason. It was just the timing or whatever. So, you know, there were some frustrations with trying to find help. And I'm sure my dad kind of missed, you know, uh, you know, the years that we had worked together more too when I was just popping in for the summers and not mm-hmm. being around for the rest of the year. So uh, when I came back to the farm, I really didn't know. I didn't want to lose the heritage. I appreciated what I had learned growing up, uh, the work ethic I had received working with with nature. Um, I appreciated the lifestyle in general, even though it was a lot of work. I thought there were a lot of good things to come about being raised on a farm. And I thought that needed a, there was value in continuing that. So I needed to find ways to make it viable, to make it continue on. And at that point, that's kind of why we had, well, we had to do something different if what we were doing, you know, at that point wasn't all working. It wasn't all um, not working. There were some good aspects that we needed to, you know, enhance, but uh, there was there was the need for change for sure at that point in history. And so what was the time period from when you came home to when you started to transition out of the dairy first to organic cropping, then to beef and, and grazing? Yeah. So late nineties is when I came back to the farm. And, um, I did take a one year technical course at Ridgewater after that. Uh, then I was on the farm full time. We actually, we had everything set to sell organic milk, but we had some additional challenges, herd health where we couldn't, where we failed to overcome. And so we were able, never able to sell organic milk at that point. Um, yeah, we had a combination of a couple of different things come through the dairy herd at that point. And so our uh, cell count for the cows just was, wasn't under control. So at that point, we, were, we, we got out of the commercial dairy operation, and that would have been the early 2000s. And uh, so at that point, then the land had already been transitioned. So it was just a matter of doing the final certification. So we were eligible then to sell organic crops off the farm in the early 2000s. And then that uh, kind of carries on through what I mentioned earlier with servicing a, a number of dairy and livestock producers in the area before we looked at some edible crops. 
Oh, looking at all the years now, yeah, about 2010 or so is then when we started focusing more on grazing aspects, and it wasn't then until about eight years ago that we we have everything now. Uh, all our cropland and everything is is established perennial pasture. Uh, there's fence on on 99% of the farm. The other 1% is temporarily fenced. So, I think actually this year was the first year probably. It is the first year we've actually covered every grazable acre on the farm with livestock at some point during the year. So that's probably where I want to focus the majority of our time now is on your transitioning into grazing. And I want to dig into it from a few different levels, the actual logistical, like, uh, you know, building infrastructure and transitioning acres to pasture. But let's start with your actual education and understanding of grazing coming from a commodity beef or commodity dairy system where primarily it's importing, you know, producing feed and bringing it to cows uh, and, and then a cropping system where it's just producing crops and sending them off the farm. Uh, how did that transition to grazing work from your educational perspective and, and actually learning the management and maybe there was less management, intentional management early on and, but just, you know, walk through that. Yeah. It's interesting because that the start of that thought process for, for me goes back to a meeting I held with a bunch of dairy producers years ago and a farmer had stood up and he said, you know, I think the official number is about three years. It took me to unlearn every formal year of education that I ever held. And so um, I, I can agree with that to a certain degree. I think there were lessons to be learned through my formal education, but it was personal efforts outside of formal education that really gave me, I feel, it's what I really treasure, I guess, as far as a wisdom or a knowledge base from what I'm working with today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's exposure to people that were doing things that, that, that simply worked within nature systems. You know, it, it's interactions and conversations I've had with people like Gabe Brown and, and Alan Williams and Kent Solberg. And um, I admire people like Neil Dennis um, in Canada and, and others that are grazing large herds, uh, small, large. I mean, the scale isn't necessarily the focus, but the fact of the matter is that they are able to do what they are able to do uh, with their efforts and have the impact that they are having and then show the results, whether it's uh, brick levels of forage or whether it's plant diversity and those types of things. And the fact that we're working within a system that's, it seems perpetual in nature. You know, it's not something that we're looking to balance that, that uh, ratio of, of whatever elements or micronutrients you're looking to focus on that day. It's, it's a system that we're a part of, but we're not having necessarily micromanage. So it's a, it's a focus on concepts. It's a focus on relationships, interactions with nature, how I'm affecting that. And uh, for better or for worse, uh, even regardless of my intentions, you know, um, everything we do really does have a, um, a significant impact long term, especially if you're looking at, at a legacy of a farm and a family and uh, efforts of a family farm trying to, um, you know, not only earn a living day to day, but then also what's going to happen. What does a farm look like in 10, 20, hundred years, whatever it might be. And so that's really been, I, I think the focus and, and interactions between other regenerative farmers and re- regenerative ranchers, um, having conversations at, at pasture walks, at, uh, grazing schools and some of these different things. And the fact that, you know, we are all looking to, to help each other and interact and share experiences 
in which we can all benefit from as opposed to, you know, what I keep comparing against the commodity ag market where, well, maybe if I, you know, if I could leverage myself just a little bit more this year, maybe I could get the neighbor's farm and we could, you know, we could expand another 500 acres or or 5,000 acres or whatever it might be. Um, That's really not the focus at all. So it's, um, yeah. Uh, it's different than uh, maybe what I would have thought it might have been looking at farming from my perspective 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, it's funny. When I came home from school, uh, I went to the University of Minnesota and I I was coming home telling dad how probably made sense we should build a feedlot. I mean, yeah, we send our bulls down to to PCC and stuff, but all these steers that aren't good enough, we could finish them out ourselves. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, that's where I got. And, it, and like you talked about the unlearning, it took a little while for me to, you know, relearn that it took going to other places, seeing what they were doing, realizing that there was something different than just what they were teaching there. And yeah, like your, your three years per year of education. I, I had three years of education, but I, I always joked I maybe didn't learn as much as I had hoped. So maybe that's why it was a little more rapid for me is that those three years of education, I didn't actually <laughs> educate myself all that much. But I, I appreciate that, that, that thought. Yeah, I think, I think um, anybody that's intentional about continuing on and, and focusing on ongoing ed and, re- and constantly evaluating, you know, not just to be critical, but, um, you know, what are the benchmarks and, and identifying where you want to be and then trying to figure out, you know, how close to your target that you've, you've reached within your context. I mean, you know, life happens. There's, there's a lot that you have to consider into every aspect and, and what you do and and what you experience. So yeah, the fact that life doesn't have to be, and it can't be considered separate from uh, a farming focus or professional focus, I think is really important when it comes to a holistic approach. Yeah. And so, when you started transitioning, then uh, you, you know obviously there was this education tra- uh, process you had to go through of going to field days or visiting other farms and learning how to even do this. What did it look like on farm though? Because you can always go to things. It, it's probably one of the I don't know the disappointments maybe of field days and farm days is you're seeing the best of what people a lot of times have to show, and when you get home, it never seems to work quite in reality like you see it see it the field days or these people who have been doing it for twenty to. 20 plus years. And it can be a little discouraging when you come home and try to make a transition that doesn't work quite as well as you had hoped or saw in somebody else's place. So when you started doing this at your farm, you know, how did, was there, was there some disappointments? Were there some challenges or, or did the transition seem somewhat, I don't know, fluid? Yeah. It, you know, that's a really good question. Cause I think of it, of course, from my perspective, but I also consider from other perspectives and I think you get very, very different answers from different people on our farm. If you'd ask that question, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, to, to some, and I'll just say from the driver by, right. To some, it, it might look like we're going completely backwards. Uh, you know, we had soybean fields for a while there, you know, yeah, there were soybeans in there, but it, it was questionable when you drove by fast enough, whether it was a soybean field. So there was a lot of Forbes out there, right? Now, you know, uh, how do you evaluate that? You know, the, well, the value of that crop was, was oftentimes, uh, you know, two, three, four times the value per bushel of a conventional field that may have been really clean. Um, you know, there's also the evaluating the nutrient density of that product and everything else. So, I mean, looking at it from that perspective, does it seem seamless? Does it seem really messy? You know, jeepers, life is, life is pretty messy. Um, I think how you address it is, is like anything. So, you know, I've gone from combating weeds and row crop fields to really appreciating when I have different things growing in my fields now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not really worried about anything uh, as far as different species of, of vegetation. At this point, you know, I've proven to myself that 
I can use the tools that I have at my disposal. And, and quite honestly, it's, it's really just livestock. You know, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually fairly embarrassed to tell you this, but I, I haven't had a running tractor on this farm for a couple of years. Um, I've got a few <laughs> that need work done to them. And, you know, for anybody that's coming to our field day next week, you're going to see the dinosaurs sitting around. They're going to be pulled out of the way so we can mow the lawn. We'll probably push them back, you know, um, <laughs> but that's where we're at. You know, um, yeah, people ask me, well, don't you have to clip thistles and that type of thing? And honestly, I haven't had to for years anymore. Do I have a few thistles? and patches in some of my fields? I, I do. Are they um, invasive? Are they taking over the field? Absolutely not. You know, Canadian thistles is one of the first things that I marveled at when I first started custom grazing because I thought I was going to have to go out there and clip some fields. But after we passed through with a mob at a density that was adequate uh, for that environment, they ate all those buds off the Canadian thistles. And, they, you know, if I had to really search, for example, you know, in that, in that scenario to find a bud in that thistle patch. So, you know, from that perspective, We've come a long ways, um, but again, we're—I'm not compromising anymore. I'm not when it comes to working within my understanding of natural processes before man got in the way, and said so we need to start tilling a lot. And I'm not throwing anybody that still tills under the bus. Um, I think in certain aspects, it, for those conditions in that context, it's a requirement in certain you know uh, crop systems. Whether or not that's sustainable overall and long term, that's another conversation. But uh, you know, we don't we don't till anymore. It's a it's a perennial pasture operation now. Um, in some situations, we deliberately go out and and put different classes of livestock out there. And in some cases, just by our efforts in the past, we've attracted different species of uh, of livestock or animals. With the ex the example this year, we had a 40-acre piece, even under irrigation in our drought. We only got one grazing off of it. Uh, after the first grazing, we had enough Canadian geese that mowed it off so clean that we never got to go back there with cattle again. So, um, you know, there's different livestock out there. Uh, they're having their effect. And I think the big thing to consider is that when we have this idea in our mindset of looking back to what it used to be before we feel Western expansion had brought us to where we are today, my point I'd love to just stress is that it's never been static, right? Um, it's never just this one thing that it was and now it's not. Uh, things ebbed and flowed and things are going to continue to ebb and flow. So um, there's this interaction that we have with our management on our farms and whether that's going to be positive or negative, it's, it's all up to us. So as far as smooth, um, I think you, you, the, some years were better than others as far as things like weed control. Uh, some things were better than others as far as the timing with rains. And I would say I probably wouldn't have arrived where I am today without going through what I have gone through in the past. So I think a lot of these transitions are really necessary for an understanding, for an opportunity to experience firsthand for any uh, land manager, if they're willing to take the time to observe and reflect and, and try to reach a deeper understanding of why you might see some of the things we see on our farms. And talk about the lifestyle, because... I imagine milking 300 cows or whatever it was back then. And the, we were organic crop farmers for many years. We still are. And, and working our way out of it, that's no easy lifestyle either. That's a full-time job and then some in the summer. I mean, now moving to a grazing enterprise, how has this improved your lifestyle, your family? You talked about your your family might have different perspectives, you know, on the whole farming through your career and everything. Maybe share how your family views, your family life has changed, if at all, uh, in these transitions from dairy to organic crops to, to now a grazing based operation. 
Yeah, that's funny because I got asked a few questions when I was milking, you know, that the 200 plus cows and I was single at the time. And so I, I just always joked. I said, well, I might as well work now. I said, because someday I might want to spend time with a wife or a family. And um, well, today, yeah, I guess just to share too. So my wife, Beth and I, we have five boys. Uh, ages 10 to uh, 17. So it is very much a family operation yet. But as far as lifestyle, you know, there's a break in the action now. I mean, the grazing season ends years ago when we were a dairy, you know, we were busy harvesting feed in season, but the rest of the year, with the exception of cold weather, making chores longer really didn't change a whole lot. So, and now there's breaks in the action for us. My wife also homeschools our kids. And so, you know, there's been times the schedules are adjusted based on what's going on at the farm or with the schoolwork and that type of thing. So it's it's a little less rigid that way. Um, we, you know, we, we milk a few cows yet, but uh, we're, we're not milking, you know, the 200 plus or even 50 anymore. So we've even changed because, uh, you know, our markets are different for our milk. Production isn't our limiting factor. And so even from that standpoint, we only milk our cows once a day after they get to a certain point in their lactation. We're, we're focused on, yes, a quality of life, the product quality that we're producing our customers and how that all fits into our overall goals of the farm. So, you know, yes, there are times that we work long hours yet and, and it's tough, but it's not like that every day of the year anymore. And so I would say because of things that we have the ability to make it a little easier. So for example, when we're planning out our moves and we have some times in the week, or if something comes up, you know, we, we can give our animals a, a, a little larger paddock that day and not have to come back as soon to move them or different things like that. So um, it's much more adaptable to what we have going on. And, uh, and maybe it's because of some in which our, our history of our dairy upbringing, but we probably maybe still work way more than we should uh, compared to maybe yeah. others' opinions. But um, nonetheless, uh, we're, we're gaining ground, I would say, in the quality of life department. And, and I was just having this conversation with Jordan Meyer, you know, a mutual friend we both know is of like lifestyle is that as we seem to reduce the workload necessary, we find something to fill with, <laughs> fill it with. It's, it's not like we're in making our life more difficult by making these transitions. We're making it simpler and we just, we find another project, another, another enterprise, something else to do. And there's advantages that come with that and disadvantages too. But uh, yeah, it, it seems to have definitely made your life style i can imagine a whole lot better than it was back in the day and so we've talked about then this this transition from lifestyle and, and you've discussed soil a little bit the big question that i'm sure a lot of people are wondering especially those in minnesota here with cropping acres and cropland is the finances side of this i mean you're if i and i haven't seen all of your your farmland and stuff but i imagine a lot of it is quite tillable a lot a lot of tillable acres similar to what we've got here and what we hear all the time is like how can you put that land, take that, you know, prime quality tillable ground and put it into pasture and make that pencil? How does the finances play into your your decisions to make these transitions? Uh, was it a, ten, a transition based on soil and, and lifestyle goals or were there financial incentives to those transitions as well? I, I think I can best probably answer that question by saying that my focus, and, and maybe this is to my discredit and not my credit, but Yes, things have to cash flow, but money has never been the first thing at the top of my list as far as decision making. I, you know, I, I've I've heard other stories from other individuals in years past that have really stuck with me, and 
you know, it, it's quite a process, I think, to really identify, well, we'll just say it your why. I mean, what, what's your letter, what's your star on the wall as, as, a, as a farmer, as a, a family member, um, whatever have you. I mean, what, what are the things that are most important to you? And I've looked at finances as being a, a result of something other than the focus on the dollar to make a dollar. And so that's what that so that transition to focusing on the resource from our farming perspective was probably much easier for me than a lot of others. I I don't have to get the top dollar. Well, I, oh, here's a good example. I mean, the last year I sold organic corn commercially. Quick little story nutshell. I was called by a buyer. They were looking for corn. They thought they were going to be short on corn. He shot me a price. I said, "Yeah, I think I have a small amount left in the bin. We can get it to you." And this individual, this buyer called me, you know, like a month later and said, how did you do it, Doug? You know, he said, well, how did you get the peak of the market just at that time? I said, well, I just have to recap the story. I said, is that you called me for corn, right? And so <laughs> um, the funny thing is, is that, yeah, so we, we got the peak of the market that time. And that was, you know, far from what it is today, even with the organic uh, corn market. But mm-hmm. I didn't grow any more corn after that year. Um, I think I did. Well, no, take that back. That's the first year. That's the last year I sold corn commercially. We we raised some um, for seed the year after that, but I, I never went after the fourteen dollars and eighty two cents corn that I had sold that year hmm. for the dollar's sake. It was always a big picture in mind. So you know, I'm going to lose track of the question here that you initially asked me. But um, <laughs> financially, yes. Yeah. So financially, I think a lot of the change was minimizing my risk. Hmm. You know, I I didn't go out and buy the numbers of cattle that I thought I would want in order to take my farm to the next level with our grazing operation. I seeked them out, but it wasn't from an ownership perspective. And so my goal was to get numbers that I thought I could work with and I could effectively manage with my skill set at the time with my grazing management on our farm and move our move our you know our ourselves forward. I was taking financially, I was taking money that I felt was degrading our system with haymaking. And I was putting that into forage that I was incorporating in the soil profile under the hooves of cattle and managing in a different way. You know, one of the things I always joke about is that, you know, making hay all these years as for a dairy herd or beef herd or whatever it was, you know, that smell of rained on hay always bothered me, right? You get out there and if you got caught with a shower of rain, you start smelling that sour smell. And well, I had to really uh, look at that differently when I started trampling down you know, as much forage as we have with our, with our herds over time. And I get out to the field and I start smelling that smell. Hey, now I have a completely different perspective on that order than I once did. Mm, Um, you know, that's, that's, that's soil building to me now, you know, that's, I can look down and Mm. I can see different insects that I'm influencing populations of, and that's all a good thing. So again, I, I've been willing to prove things to myself with my own, you know, building my own wall of belief with, practicing things that I've heard and testing them on our own farms. But I think the resource has been the focus. I always felt that if I took care of the farm, the farm could take care of us as a family financially and um, and even nutritionally, right? Because we're, we're eating product from our own farm. So yes, finances were a part of the operation, but it wasn't the first thing I considered when I was looking at making change. Yeah. And, and yet, well, like you said, when you take care of the farm, the farm will take care of you and it has. I mean, you've made this transition and you've probably reduced your inputs, your machinery expenses and input expenses. You've 
and you've sought out additional ways of, you know, kind of unique ways. We actually, you know, this year experimented with dairy grazing heifers. That idea came from you. I, I'd never really heard of that as a kind of a grazing enterprise or, or thought of that at least. And, um, you know, you were creative in your management of your grazing enterprise. It wasn't just, you know, ignoring the financial thing by any means. And without, you know, asking you to share, you know, open up your, your, your finances and, and your, your tax spreadsheets and whatnot, you know, for us. I mean, talk about how, if, if you're willing, you've managed to be profitable in a grazing enterprise in an area that otherwise is primarily used for row crops, corn and soybeans. Well, and, and I can't take all the credit for sure. I had help, um, you know, if not from, from God for certain, but then, mm. you know, my first conversation I had with custom grazing was at a sustainable farming association event. Mm. Kent and I still talk about it because we still remember, both of us remember sitting down with, with, you know, our, the first, um, organic dairy producer that I, that I grazed for and I still grazed for today. So it, it's something that's been on the radar of others. You know, we just happened to be I would say prepared mentally to be able to tackle something like that because of, again, some of these uh, exposures I've had to different people and different people's stories, you know, some of which I've, I've never met and I, and I won't because they passed on, but I, I really wish I would have had an opportunity to meet some of these people that have done these things. So, mm. so there, again, it, it was minimizing risk too for us because we had a predictable uh, cash flow financially from that perspective. And in what, you know, from some's perspective, I was also capped at my profit potential because I knew what I was going to make per head per day, for example. Uh, typically, we, we charge per head per day when we do um, when we charge for our custom grazing services. So yes, we, you knew what to expect. And yes, a large portion of that can be labor, if depending on how intensely and how much of an investment of labor you want and what you're looking to get out of it. But I think the thing is long-term there is that I felt that I could probably increase my carrying capacity of the farm over time. And that would be my potential profit increase over years. And and that's happened. And certainly it's happened. Mm-hmm. And we've had some pretty good rainfall years too in there, you know, to to reflect on. And this last year was was certainly not that. Yeah. But I really do feel that we were able to weather where we are today because of, you know, what we've experienced in the past. So uh, absolutely. I I think there are so many wins that can be acquired from cooperative efforts with grazing and it doesn't have to, well, you're a good example. I mean, the heifers that you grazed weren't um, organic, I understand. And so uh, the organic dairy industry does require, you know, grazing to a certain degree. So there is a requirement that has to be met. But um, I I think it's great that you did conventional dairy heifers this last year, because, you know, maybe others looking at this as a possibility can say, well, yeah, okay, well, it is potentially possible. So let's look at those ways. And not everybody's situation is the same. And so some thinking about doing something like this, it will fit better than others. But really, if you want to do something, I mean, there's usually a way somehow, mm-hmm. some way, if you, if you feel that something that you're considering is a good idea, you know, there's usually a way to implement is my theory. So that's yeah. kind of the way we approach what we're, what we're doing today at the beginning. Yeah. And I, and I liked what you said about you seeing as your potential to increase your profitability, not necessarily in higher pricing, not necessarily in, you know, some sort of a premium market or anything, but just the ability to increase production. And I feel like a mindset of so many people is that at least in this cropping area of the Midwest, um, is that the pasture 
is the back 30 or 40 acres or whatever of the quarter section that can't be farmed. You know, it's, it's the hillside, it's the rocky stuff. We can't produce good corn and soybeans. And so, you know, we'll either let it sit or we'll throw a couple of cows on it or we'll rent it for whatever somebody will give us to it. It's, it's not as a perspective or a mindset of pasture being incredibly productive, high quality, nutritious forage that can put on a lot of gains and a lot of weight and, and, and really be a good feeding system. And, and when you talk about some of these dairy facilities and their custom grazing fees, you know, I've heard prices well in excess of $2.50 per head per day and, and a grazer managing even just slight management can can afford a price a custom rate significantly lower than that and still come out ahead and, and come out well and it's just uh you know it's it's almost the biggest challenge isn't necessarily developing the plan the biggest challenge isn't figuring out the management it seems like the biggest challenge is convincing people's mindset that pasture is not just the back 40 of wasteland i mean it's not the wasted ground it's it's can be good productive ground and even more so maybe on some of your prime tillable acres as opposed to those hilly rocky sides. <laughs> I think that's that's really something that's going to really be revealed over time because as some of these pastures in the back that you know they haven't been as abused as some of our cropland, right? Uh some of the I, I would say restoration efforts are quite extensive when we're talking about converting cropland. I would much easier convert or improve that back 40 that, yeah, it's been neglected or abused, but boy, we've got a few things going on in those areas that we're not going to have in our cropland that's, you know, had synthetics pounded to it for years. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we are doing what we're doing. We are doing it on land that probably other people think we're crazy because, you know, we could we could potentially do better financially with other with other efforts or even in some cases less effort than what we do with managing herds on our ground but again it's it's part of our big picture you know the short term gratification what's that going to leave us in 5 years what's going to leave us in in 1 year you yeah. know if we came out and yes our farm is certified organic but you go out and you you know you do one prohibited substance application and you're reset for 36 months yeah. and so you know, this has happened in a lot of cropping operations, whether it's organic, conventional, and, and some, you know, jumping ship from one to the other too. But again, it, it's our big picture. It's the legacy we'd like to leave. And mm -hmm. I don't know what the next generation is going to choose to do, but we're going to try to do our, the best that we can to set them up as well as we can. Yeah, no, that's a, a good perspective. And, and it'll be interesting to see where you are in 10 years, 20 years, because you've clearly demonstrated over your lifetime, the ability to pivot <laughs> or the lack of fear of, of pivoting. I mean, from large dairy to organic cropping alone, that, that transition alone is pretty drastic. And then from cropping to grazing is maybe less out there, but you know, I mean, you've clearly demonstrated your ability and willingness to pivot. So it'll be interesting to see what the future looks like. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, and, and um, I think it's just, it's important to say too, is that, you know, grazing is not just grazing, it's not just grazing. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a, yeah, I mean, traditionally there's a good reason why some situations why, you know, we wouldn't want grazing based on what we've traditionally seen, you know, like Jared talked about, you know, you that history of the back 40 being something that we couldn't do anything else with because it was too wet in the spring, it was too wet, you know, whatever the case was, you know, it just wasn't conducive to row cropping or, or uh, other production methods. So it was a default. Well, you know, just imagine if we're as, uh, if we put as much energy into developing the ecosystem of our pastures and our grazing lands as we do to develop the latest, greatest seed corn variety, uh, you know, things, pretty impressive things mm -hmm. can happen right and we don't have to necessarily invest a whole year to get what we think might turn out in two years when we're testing that new seed you know we can evaluate things 
in a number of different ways in other, you know, with different yeah. methods. So yeah, absolutely. Um, we need to be, we need to be mindful of everything when we're yeah. considering our management. Yeah. And, and I suppose the, the focus hasn't been put on it because we're, we're talking about a system that's low input and there's not money to be made in no input systems. So that's kind of a, a counterintuitive process to be able to really expand on a, on a given enterprise. Um, we're pushing up on an hour here and I want to respect your time. And so you've mentioned a bunch of, you know, resources being important to you. I, I want, I'd like if you could name, and I'm sure you could name 50, but if you had to narrow it down to one to three resources that can be conferences, conventions, books, podcasts, webinars, something that you would recommend a listener check out and, and we'll tie those into our show notes here. What would you recommend? Well, certainly a sustainable farming association has great resources and great links on their website to a number of different opportunities. Uh, that's one of the biggest soil health Academy and understanding ag tremendous resource as well. Excellent community of, of regenerative like-minded people that are willing to share experiences. Um, any field days locally that have a local food emphasis or resource quality focus. There's a lot of different ones out there. Jeepers, uh, YouTube for crying out loud! There, it, you can spend hours. You know, there's so many stories that I've I've heard from people that uh, talk about how many hours they've spent on on YouTube, just you know, gleaning information. You know, it's a different era than it was 30 years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, the internet, yes, you always have to sort through the good and the bad and the ugly. But if you can if you can base everything off of a set of principles, then you can start sorting through some of the stuff that uh, you know. Well, let me just put it this way. I, I heard somebody tell me something that I think is very valuable. It's, it's you know, the, between a conversation between two people, one says to the other, don't believe everything I tell you, but don't forget anything I've said. And so the whole point of that is, is that, you know, you and I might be of a different mindset today, having the very same conversation that we could, you know, have in five years from now. But if you're deliberate about seeking out a greater understanding of how you can you know, you can play your role to to the benefit, overall benefit of everything, then you're going to see things differently in five years than you did five years ago. And so, you know, Jerry, you and I couldn't even have a conversation about C without having to cover mm -hmm. A first. And our perspective of A might be different. So, you know, just, I guess, keep that in mind, because sometimes you hear things and within the context of what your understanding is, and it might be different next year. I mean, just the basic understanding of, of how nutrient cycling happens today in my mindset compared to what it did, you know, 20 years ago, completely changes my mm -hmm. approach to how I'm going to manage my day-to-day -day yeah. on the farm. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. And if somebody wants to reach out or learn more about what you're doing, is there any, anything you want to plug as far as how to, how to reach you or, or anything you might want? Yeah. People to know about. Oh, sure. Yep. You can always reach us through uh, sustainable farming association's website. We've got links on there. You can send us, send us an email, send me an email directly if you'd like. Uh, always willing to have a conversation about all the things we've talked about today and more. All right. Well, thank you so much, Doug. I, I really appreciate it. And we'll uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Jared. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.